This time I'd like to ask you to please open with me to our text for this morning, which is Exodus 19, verses 1 through 6. Exodus 19, verses 1 through 6. And uh, we're continuing our sermon series this morning, uh, The People of God, looking at the biblical and theological origins of the church, of us as God's people. Uh, We've been looking at that the last couple of weeks and sort of making our way through parts of the Old Testament, tracing the origins of God's people and us as his church. And we're going to continue that this morning with Exodus 19, again, verses 1 through 6. And this is what the text says. On the first day of the third month after the Israelites left Egypt, on that very day, they came to the desert of Sinai. After they set out from Rephidim, they entered the desert of Sinai and camped there in front of the mountain. Then Moses went up to God and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, this is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession." Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, most of us have probably had some kind of object that we treasured when we were kids. Um, A stuffed animal maybe, a blanket, a lovey as they're called uh, these days. Something that we were attached to, something that we valued, something that made us feel safe, secure, and comforted. Author and Christian philosopher Dallas Willard tells a story about that in his book, The Divine Conspiracy. He writes about how his son, John Samuel, had a stuffed animal that he loved as a child. It was called Sleepy Dog, and John Samuel constantly had it with him. When he was playing, Sleepy Dog was there. When he was eating, Sleepy Dog was at the table with him. And when he went to bed at night, Sleepy Dog went to sleep with him right next to him. Willard writes, eventually over time, Sleepy Dog became emaciated and threadbare. My wife cleaned and repaired it as best she could, of course, but I, in my infinite wisdom, of which I had so much more when I was younger, eventually decided that Sleepy Dog must be replaced. So we obtained another little stuffed animal and Sleepy Dog disappeared. John never really accepted the replacement though, and in his gentle spirit he grieved for his little stuffed friend for a long time. That's a good lesson for those of us who are parents of young children. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. And even if it is, if your kid still loves it, still don't fix it. That's what it means to treasure something though right? It means to love it, to value it, to appreciate it maybe even more than it's worth. I doubt that anyone else valued Sleepy Dog as much as John Samuel, right? The things that we treasure aren't always valuable in and of themselves. Instead, they're valuable because they're valuable to us. And in the same way, that's what we see in this text, It's in that same way that the people of Israel were valuable to God. As we'll see in just a little bit, there actually isn't anything all that momentous or tremendous or wonderful about the people of Israel in and of themselves that makes them special. And yet here in these verses, God tells them that they're special anyway. 
He calls them his treasured possession. In other words, he tells the Israelites that they are valuable as a people because they're valuable to him. Now to this point in this sermon series, we've really only been looking at one thing so far. We're four weeks in, including this week, and more or less all we've been doing to this point is tracing the blessings of God to us as human beings through the first few chapters of Genesis. Uh, We remember that we said in order to understand who God has called us to be as his people, as his church today, part of what we need to understand is who God originally created us to be as human beings in the first place. In other words, we can't uh, understand what we're here for now, our purpose, our goal, our mission as God's people today if we don't understand what God originally made us for in the beginning. And so that's really what we've been looking at so far in this series. In Genesis 1, we saw that we are created in God's image to rule and steward his creation according to his will. Uh, We've obviously done a pretty poor job of that though, and so we looked at just how poorly of a job we've done when we looked at the Tower of Babel story in Genesis 11. And yet God has never lost sight of his plans or purpose for us. He never rescinded or took back that blessing that he gave us as human beings in Genesis 1. He never gave up on us as human beings or what he has intended for us. And that's what we saw last week when we looked at Genesis 12. In that passage, God reaffirmed his original blessing to us as human beings when he called Abram and his wife Sarai. He promised to give them a son, to make their descendants into a great nation, and then to use them to bless all the rest of the world the same way that he had always intended for us as human beings to be a blessing in his creation. And God followed through on that. Like he tends to when he makes promises, God kept his promises to Abram and Sarai. They ended up having that child that he promised to them. His name was Isaac. And then Isaac had children of his own and they had children too. And slowly but surely they grew into exactly what God promised they would be. An entire nation of people, a group of God followers, a whole people that God would use use to bless the rest of the world, the people of Israel. Things got a bit off track as the Israelites got caught up in slavery for a while in Egypt, though, and we actually looked at that whole story this past Lent, so I'm not going to retell the whole thing this morning. I'll suffice it to say that after years of oppression in Egypt, eventually God rescued the Israelites. He freed them from their captors in Egypt, delivered them from slavery, and restored them to himself. And that's where our text picks things up this morning. You see, here in Exodus 19... The Israelites are still pretty fresh off of their liberation from Egypt. God has led them out of their slavery, protected them from a last ditch effort by the Egyptian Pharaoh to recapture them, and has now successfully led them through a few months in the wilderness. But it wasn't just aimless wandering that God had the Israelites doing in the wilderness. Instead, he had a destination in mind a place where he and the Israelites were heading, where they could pause for a bit a stopping place for them on the journey he's leading them on. And so God brings the Israelites to a mountain, Mount Sinai to be exact, in the desert of Sinai on the Sinai Peninsula. And once they're there, something amazing happens. Truth be told, there are actually a number of amazing things that happen uh, at Mount Sinai, but maybe the most amazing one is that God himself actually comes and meets with his people there. The Israelites take up residence around Mount Sinai and God takes up residence on Mount Sinai. 
His very presence descends to dwell among his people. He comes to meet with them, to be near to them, and to speak to them as his people. And verses four through six of our text record what he says. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. In other words, what God is doing here in this passage is reaffirming his promises to his people. In the beginning, God blessed Adam and Eve and called them to be a blessing to his world. After our fall into sin, that got off track. But eventually, God called Abram and Sarai, blessed them, and called them to be a blessing too. And now he's just doing the same thing over again. The people of Israel, Abram and Sarai's descendants, have become the inheritors of that blessing. And so God is once again making clear his purpose for them. They are his treasured possession, his kingdom of priests, his holy nation, and so they are to be the blessing for the world that God has always intended. Now at this point, if you're like me, and maybe it's a good thing if you're not, um, you might be wondering, but why Israel? Why these people? Why this nation? Of all the groups of people on earth, what makes the Israelites so special that God would choose them for himself and use them to bless the rest of the world? And quite simply, the answer is nothing. God actually makes that clear to the Israelites over and over in scripture. Throughout the Old Testament, God repeatedly tells the Israelites that despite what they might think about themselves, he didn't choose them as his people because they were some great nation or a super righteous group of people or a cut above everyone else. In fact, scripture actually says the exact opposite. Throughout the Old Testament, we read, that God, we read repeatedly that God chose the Israelites in spite of the fact, actually, that they weren't any of those things, that they weren't all that special. For instance, in Deuteronomy 7, verse 7, Moses tells the Israelites that the Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. And then two chapters later, in Deuteronomy 9, verse 6, Moses again says to them, understand then that it is not because of your righteousness that the Lord your God is giving you this good land to possess, the promised land, the land of Canaan. And this is what he says, for you are a stiff-necked people, Talk about bringing somebody down a couple of notches, right? I mean, imagine being an Israelite and hearing that from God. You're not all that great. I didn't choose you because you're so special. In fact, I chose you in spite of the fact that you're not. What those verses and others like them are saying is that there's nothing inherently amazing or noteworthy about the Israelites that made them somehow deserving of God's affection and call. If, in fact, if anything, there was quite a bit about them that made them undeserving of being chosen by God. And so again, the question remains, why is it that God chose this group of people? Why did he choose Israel? Why is it that they're the ones he's picked to be his people? Of all the nations on earth, why are they the ones that God makes his treasured possession? Well, first of all, I think part of it is because God sometimes just likes to have a bit of fun 
We actually talked about this last week when we looked at Abram and Sarai too, right? But God has a habit of using people and situations that don't really seem like they're going to pan out. I mean, like we just saw in Deuteronomy 7, Israel is a tiny nation. In fact, they're hardly even deserving of that title at this point. When God leads them out of Egypt, they're barely more than a big extended family. And that brings up another piece of this too because just three months before the events of this text here in Exodus 19, the Israelites were still slaves. Talk about an unlikely group when it comes to having an effect on the rest of the world, right? These people might be God's treasured possession here in this text, but they've only just stopped being Pharaoh's possession instead. You think they'd be thankful for that too, right? You think that they would be grateful to God for the fact that he's redeemed them and rescued and delivered them. But again, as Moses says in Deuteronomy 9, that's not really the case. Instead, this is a group of people who, despite everything that God does for them, will repeatedly reject him, disobey him, and worship other gods instead of him. Even going to the point of giving those other gods, those false gods, credit for the things that God has done for them. And yet, in spite of all of that, In spite of the incredible odds stacked against them, this is the people that God chooses to continue his plan of blessing the world. And this is actually a theme kind of throughout all of scripture, right? God chooses people who can't have kids to keep his plan going. He chooses outsiders and foreigners to keep the plot moving. He chooses sinners, cowards, and the unlikeliest of suspects to be the heroes of the story he's telling. It's almost as if throughout scripture, God is saying, you don't think I can do it? Watch me. Not only will I make everything that I want to happen, happen, but I will also do it in the most unlikely of ways possible. And so despite all the infinitely better options out there, God chooses small, enslaved, unfaithful Israel to be his chosen people, his treasured possession, his kingdom of priests. And that gets us to the real answer to that why question. Why does God choose Israel? Well, apart from just having a bit of fun and doing the unexpected, God has a deeper reason here too for what he's doing. And it has to do with that last title for the Israelites that I just quoted from this passage, Kingdom of Priests. You know what priests do, right? Priests are mediators. They stand in the gap between us as human beings and God. Think of any priest you've ever seen, whether it's in scripture or on a TV show or in a movie or in some other faith tradition, that's what they do, right? They mediate between us and God, they stand in the gap between us. They represent us and our concerns to God and God and his concerns to us. That's how the priests in the Old Testament functioned for the nation of Israel. That's how priests in other religions function and that's how priests even in other traditions of Christianity function as well. They're go-betweens who represent God to us and us to God. And that's what Israel was supposed to be too. That's what it means that they're a kingdom of priests. That's what God is calling them to when he says that they're a holy nation here. 
He's saying that of all peoples on earth, he's setting them aside to be priests, holy representatives, go-betweens, who can stand in the gap between him and all the other peoples on earth. In other words, Israel was supposed to be on a small scale what an individual priest, or sorry, Israel was supposed to be on a large scale what a, a normal priest does on a small scale. If, if an individual priest represents individuals to God, then what Israel was supposed to do was represent the rest of the world to him. That was their calling. That was their purpose. That's why God blessed them, rescued, redeemed them, and called them back to himself as his people. He did it for their sake, sure. He also cared about the Israelites and wanted to redeem and renew them, but he didn't do it just for their sake because he also did it for the sake of everyone else. That's the thing people sometimes get mixed up about when it comes to God's calling of Israel, his election of them, as scripture puts it, his predestination of them. God didn't choose Israel as his special chosen people to the exclusion of all the other nations of the world. Instead, he chose Israel as a means to facilitate their inclusion into relationship with him. As God's priests, Israel was the way that God was going to reach out to redeem and restore his entire creation. The best way I've heard all of this explained is actually with an analogy that one of my seminary professors used to use. Um, Back in seminary, one of my professors used to say that Israel was God's beachhead. Now, if you know military strategy or military history, then you probably already know what a beachhead is. But basically, a beachhead is when an invading group of soldiers lands on a beach somewhere and establishes a position from which they can then launch a bigger attack. Um, Probably the most famous beachhead in history, at least modern history, is Normandy Beach in France, which the Allies used on D-Day during World War II. If you've ever seen the movie Saving Private Ryan, then you probably know the story. But on D-Day, what the Allies did was land a whole bunch of troops at Normandy Beach in France. And then from there, they fought their way past the German defenses, landed a whole bunch more forces and supplies, and then got ready for everything that was going to come next. And what came next? They spread out and advanced in order to liberate the rest of Europe. And that's a beachhead. It's a small initial bit of land that an invading force takes over so that they can then launch a bigger attack. And according to my professor, that's what Israel was intended to be for God. They were his beachhead. You see, Normandy was never the goal for the Allies. And we didn't land a whole bunch of troops on Normandy Beach on D-Day just so that we could sit there and enjoy the beach after taking it over. Instead, the only reason why the Allies wanted that beach was so that they could keep going. The beach was only a means to an end. There was a bigger mission after that. And it's the same with God. God didn't choose Israel so that he could just have Israel. He chose Israel so that he could have the world. You see, like in World War II, there's a hostile force that's taken this world over. It's called sin. And it's invaded every nook and cranny of this world, every nook and cranny of our lives, every nook and cranny of God's good creation. And yet God wasn't content to let things stay that way. 
Like we've seen throughout this series, he didn't create us as human beings for that. Instead, he was still determined for his world to be blessed. He was still determined for us to be a blessing. And so he set out to liberate his world from the sin and despair that had overtaken it. Israel was his first objective in that plan. He redeemed them first. He called one nation back to himself, but he didn't do it so that he could just have that one nation. He did it so that he could have all the nations. Israel was supposed to be the example. They were supposed to show the rest of the world what it looks like when we as human beings live in the kind of relationship with our God that he created us to have. They were supposed to be the beachhead through whom God would spread his grace and mercy and call all the rest of his creation back to himself. Unfortunately, though, as we see throughout the rest of the Old Testament, Israel never really accomplished that task. Rather than see themselves as a beachhead that was part of a larger goal, they saw themselves as the goal. Rather than see themselves as one nation among many that God wanted to call back to himself, they mistakenly thought that they were the only ones God wanted to call back to himself. And rather than understand their calling as a kingdom of priests and a holy nation for God to represent himself to the rest of the world, they thought God only wanted to represent himself to them. And so they cut off the rest of the world. And let's be fair. Who of us as sinful, sinful people wouldn't have done the same thing, right? I've got to think that if it was the Dutch that God had come to, or the English, or the Korean, or the Nigerian, or any of the other nations or peoples in the world, that the story would have played out the same. Because if you get to be God's special chosen people, then the temptation quickly comes along to ignore the reason that God has chosen you, and just think that you're special and that he loves just you as opposed to anyone else. And so eventually, God sent another mediator. Israel was supposed to be God's mediator between him and the rest of the world, but they failed. And so eventually, God sent another one. Someone else to stand in that gap between us and him. Someone else to represent him to his world and his world to him. Someone else to call the peoples of the world to repentance, to experience the grace of their God, and to live as his people again. That mediator's name was Jesus Christ. And he came as an Israelite, as part of God's kingdom of priests, a member of that holy nation that God had called to himself, but he didn't come just for that nation. Israel had unfortunately closed the doors of God's blessings to the world so that they could just keep those blessings for themselves. Christ came to throw the doors wide again, to fling the floodgates open, and to allow the blessing, mercy, and grace of his Father to flood the nations just like he'd always intended. You see, it's because of him, Jesus, that we now get to be called God's priests in this world, his holy and set-apart nation, his church. It's because of Christ's life, death, and resurrection that we too are now treasured by our God. 
It's because of him that we are now the ones he's using to accomplish his mission of blessing in this world. But remember that mission. Like Israel, we're not God's chosen people just for our own benefit. God didn't choose us and and choose to save us just for our own sake. He didn't call us out of darkness into his wonderful light so that we alone could experience that wonderful light. Instead, he has placed that call on us so that we can serve as his priests, be a light to the nations, and function as the beachhead today through whom he will redeem and restore his entire creation. That's our role, that's our mission, that's our purpose as his people and his church. And we're gonna talk about that more next week as well. Thanks be to God, amen. Will you pray with me? Lord God, we sing of this often, your grace has no limits. It's bound in no way, it's extended to all of us, Lord. Whether we receive it is a different matter, but you open your salvation to us and you've done it all through Jesus Christ. Thank you for sending us mediators through whom you could represent yourself to your fallen world, first Israel, then Christ. Thank you for his sacrifice on the cross and the way in which it's allowed us to become part of your people and help us to live as your people. We pray this all in his name, in the name of Jesus, amen.